welcome to Talking Migration. I'm Clara Sandlind and Talking Migration is supported by the Department of Politics and International Relations at the University of Sheffield. What do we owe to refugees? This is the title of David Owens, uh, Professor of Social and Political Philosophy at the University of Southampton, new book. This urgent moral and political question is really at the forefront of global politics and it has been extensively debated by scholars. In his book, David Oban tries to reconcile two main pictures of refugees and uh, the concomitant obligations to refugees. And in doing so, he answers key questions on how refugees can be defined, what responsibilities states have towards refugees, and how these can be fairly distributed globally. So I started by asking David Owen to summarise the main argument of the book. Okay, so, so the motivation for the book is that the current uh, refugee regime is uh, at best under strain and perhaps cracking under that strain. And there are several reasons for that. But it's important that the issue is not simply a practical one. It's not simply about under-resourcing, for example. But there's a more general political and indeed philosophical issue here. So the main point of the book is to try to pr propose an account of the international refugee regime that enables us to address the ethical and political challenges of refugee protection, but to do so with a renewed understanding of the ground justification and value of the international refugee regime and what it requires of us. So the main argument starts from the idea that a central part of the problem with our current situation is that our understanding of refugeehood is torn between two incompatible pictures, one humanitarian, the other political. And this generates a series of indeterminacies and conflicts that are exploited by states and other political actors. Now the tension between these two pictures, I argue, is not accidental or contingent, but is rooted in the history of the formation of the refugee regime. For example, the UNHCR is grounded in the humanitarian view, while the 1951 convention is grounded in the political view. So what's needed, I argue, is an account that can make sense of the evolving practice of refugee protection, but which overcomes the limitations of each of the humanitarian and political pictures. So I propose a new picture of refugeehood grounded in the claims to legitimacy of states and of the international state system, in which the international refugee regime is conceived of as a kind of legitimacy repair mechanism directed to securing the reconciliation of state sovereignty on the one hand and human rights on the other. So the basic thought is that the international state system can be seen as a normative order the legitimacy of which is based on the one hand on the norm of state sovereignty and non-intervention and on the other hand universal human rights. And that order serves as a kind of dispersed structure of global governance in which the task of protecting human rights is assigned to states that are responsible for the populations in their territory. The failure of individual states to meet this task 
creates a legitimacy problem not just for them, but for the international order as a whole. If you like, and Joe Karens put it, because the state system assigns people to states, states collectively have a responsibility to help those for whom this assignment is disastrous. So refugee protection is a kind of mechanism for repairing those legitimacy failures. Now, among the implications of this argument are that refugees um, uh, understood as all of those for whom the international community has a duty to stand in loco civitatis should be subject to the norm of non-refoulement. But we also need to differentiate different classes of refugees. And we need to look at divisions of responsibility for refugees in new ways. Um, and that's basically the core of what the book is trying to do and the, the kind of central pivot on which the argument turns. Great, thank you. Um, I think we might tease out some of the things that you just mentioned. So to start, you, uh, you uh, talk about this distinction and tension between humanitarian and political pictures of refugees. So could you just explain a bit further uh, what that consists of? Yeah, I mean, I should probably quickly introduce the notion of a picture. Yeah. So a picture, as conceived here, is, is, is considerably wider than a definition, right? So a picture refers to a whole background set of presuppositions, uh, assertability warrants, inferences, within which a range of relatively determinate arguments uh, have life. So now let's make that a bit more concrete and what we'll see is that each of the humanitarian and political pictures combines a conception of refugees a ground on the basis of which responsibility for refugees is 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 based and a account of uh, how what that responsibility is and how it should be prepared. So all of those elements are bound together in each picture. So let's distinguish them. So the humanitarian picture basically says refugees are forcibly displaced persons who typically, but not necessarily, crossed an international border. So people who have compelling reasons to flee or not return to their home state on the grounds that return would pose a threat to, to basic needs. And this picture of refugees and our relationship to them kind of pervades much of the public imagination. As Max Sherem notes, the term refugee here uh, connotes people fleeing war, famine, failed states. They're portrayed as victims waiting in camp until they can return or be resettled. So these are the neediest of the needy, such that a refugee's plight appears morally tantamount to that of a, a kind of baby who's been left on one's doorstep in the dead of winter. And a clear example of that humanitarian picture is provided in Alexander Betts and Paul Collier's recent book, Refuge, where they argue that Syrians forced to flee their home by violence are ethically analogous to the drowning child in the pond that we all have an unambiguous duty of rescue towards. 
Now, by contrast, the political picture argues for the distinctiveness of refugees con compared to other forcibly displaced persons. And the basic claim here is that refugees are special because persecution is special. It's a distinctive wrong, one that targets and repudiates the standing of the refugee as a member of the political community. So refugees, on the political view, aren't simply necessitous strangers who require humanitarian aid. They're persons who've been made de facto stateless and require asylum. So the humanitarian and political pictures diverge on their responses to the question of who should be entitled to refugee status. Okay? From a humanitarian perspective, there's no essential moral difference between people fleeing persecution and people fleeing famine, or those who flee across the borders and those who are forcibly displaced in their state of nationality. Whereas from a political perspective, only persons outside the state and threatened by persecution should be entitled to refugeehood. But even more, the two pictures also shape distinct understandings of what obligations are owed to person with the status refugee. And those understandings, in turn, have significant implications for how such obligations should be shared and for how we think about the nature of the grant of refugee status as an expressive act. So for the humanitarian picture, the underlying obligation is a moral duty to prevent undeserved suffering. This obligation takes the form of providing a refuge within which basic needs can be secured and protected as long as the costs of doing so are not unreasonably burdensome. So the focus of international cooperation is on sharing the burden of protecting refugees from serious harm, while the granting of refuge is a communicative act that expresses moral solidarity with vulnerable strangers. By contrast, for the political picture, the underlying obligation is a political obligation to redress the injustice of membership repudiation to which refugees are subject. That obligation takes the form of providing refugees with asylum conceived of as surrogate membership in a state that's not their own, and thereby reasserting their political standing as equal members of global political society. So here the focus of international cooperation is on sharing the responsibility for upholding the political standing of refugees as members of global political society. While the act of granting asylum is a communicative act that expresses political condemnation of the persecuting state. So as you can see, so in those two different pictures, we not only have contrasting conceptions of who should be entitled to refugees or who is a refugee, but of what the grounds of refugeehood are and what the responsibilities to refugees are and how they should be shared. So correct me if I'm wrong, but um, I think uh, the way that you distinguish then three categories of refugees and also your view of asylum as a legitimacy repair mechanism is a way to, in a way, reconcile those two pictures. Um, yeah, I mean, what I'm try trying to, to, to do is to say, 
there are good reasons to think of forcibly displaced people, the vast majority of for forcibly displaced people, as refugees who should be subject to the norm of non refoulement you know, who should not be returned to their home state uh, insofar as that may put base their basic rights in danger. But I also want to, 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 to say, and if you like, here's where I'm on the political side, um, that there is an important difference between people fleeing persecution and people fleeing civil war or people fleeing famine. And that those differences, you know, matter both in the terms of the duties that the international community has to those different groups and to what the grant of refuge to each of those groups expresses, uh, um, you know, in terms of states uh, to each other. So just to clarify, those three uh, categories then of refugees then correspond to um, granting of asylum, sanctuary or refuge. Yes. Uh, so I don't know if you want to say any more about that or why you think this distinction is important. Yeah, so, so um, basically I, I sort of say, look, the first group of uh, um, refugees are those who require asylum. And that's basically people fleeing persecution whose membership has been wrongfully repudiated. A second group of people require, require sanctuary. Um, those are people fleeing conditions of generalized violence or, or civil war. And a third uh, group are people fleeing kind of discrete environmental problems, flood, 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 flooding, landslides, or famine. Okay. Um, now, so the idea here is that look, if you are an asylum refugee, you need to be given access to new political membership pretty fast. That is the way of redressing the distinctive wrong to which you've been subject. If you're fleeing um, generalized violence and civil war, then you need to be kind of given conditions of social and cultural agency and integration that enable you to still be able to kind of plan your life in a, re in a reasonable way. Um, to integrate into the society um, and after a period of time if the, if return is not a realistic option to be granted political membership in that new society and refuge is basically just temporary humanitarian protection um, because the idea is that basic needs can be provided, you know, more efficiently to you in, let's say, a, a camp in a bordering country than, you know, in your home state. So it's basically part of a kind of humanitarian, more general humanitarian toolkit in the case of, of, of refuge. And, you know, so I mean, the idea here um, or the basic kind of thought um, is that you know not only are these groups subject to distinctive wrongs or harms 
But those distinctive wrongs or harms generate different duties on the international community. And the granting of refugee status to each of those signal is a way the international community signals an appropriate response to the state from which people are coming. In the case of persecution, it a grant of asylum, it says, look, you know, condemnation of the persecuting state is the appropriate thing. That might mean sanctions, for example. In the case of people fleeing generalized violence or civil war, it communicates a kind of political solidarity with the people of, of the state that's in that crisis and the need for like peace building efforts or get, you know, um, peace and reconciliation between different parties. Okay. In the case of refuge, it communicates that what's needed is kind of temporary humanitarian protection and the need to boost the capacity of the home state to kind of address the basic needs of its citizens. So, so there's this sort of dual aspect. It's both about what's due to refugees, but it's also about the ability of these distinct legal statuses to sort of communicate what an appropriate response of the international community to the home state is. So I just wanted to um, zoom in a little bit on the difference between those first two categories. So like you just mentioned, you argue that for asylum refugees, um, they are owed new membership, uh, whereas sanctuary refugees um, are owed social and cultural integration in the first instance. But how, how stark do you envision this distinction to be in practice? And do you think that the kind of stability offered by new membership or citizenship it's, it's actually needed for successful cultural and social integration as well. Um, just starting with the last bit, I think that um, political membership is needed for full social and cultural integration. But I think for um, people enjoying sanctuary to have you know, good enough social and political, social and cultural integration, enough that they can experience a, a genuine sense of agency over their own lives, you know, and a, a kind of sense of themselves as autonomous, able to make decisions about their lives. That that doesn't itself, in the first instance, require kind of full integration. That's why in thinking about um, sanctuary refugees, I want to say, well, look, you know, sanctuary refugees are best supported in states where there's either strong cultural um, overlap or, as it were, there, there, there are robust conditions of, of social integration, like relatively strong welfare state. Um, uh, provisions because you know those do the immediate important job of of as it were enabling people to feel themselves as not powerless but as effective social agents with respect to their own li lives um, now Although 
sanctuary refugees have not been had their membership repudiated in the way that's true of asylum refugees so they haven't been wronged in in the distinctive sense that asylum refugees have you know they are still on classic social membership grounds entitled to political um membership you know if there is no real prospect in the short to medium term of their return to the home state so so i sort of say look they should be seen as at the very least equivalent to other migrants who enter and are enabled to take out membership after a period of residence but because their existing citizenship is inoperative um they sh they should arguably have a kind of faster access to citizenship than normal uh if you like voluntary immigrants as one might uh call it so so in practice given how long most refugee producing events such as civil wars uh go on in practice though there's it's likely that most sanctuary refugees will become citizens of the states in which they're given sanctuary and there's kind of just one other important point here which i'd just like to emphasize for both asylum refugees and sanctuary refugees um which is that they should not be required to give up their existing citizenship as a condition of acquiring the new one and that's because after let's say in the case of asylum refugees the government has cha changed uh, in the home state and it's a non-persecuting government or in the case of sanctuary refugees that you know the civil war is finished peace and reconciliation is taking place that to enable people to make the choice to return as a real choice and not simply not a, a notional choice but to also give them the kind of security that acknowledges that returning is a risk that returning uh you know may be difficult may become with uh costs that dual nationality which enables them to move between the original state and the state of asylum or sanctuary you know provides a kind of sort of security um for refugees in a way that acknowledges the kind of that their lives have been forcibly transnational so one thing that you um mentioned there was that different states might be better than others so offering uh, different kinds of protection um and so at, towards the end of the book that you um uh, you discuss that there is this um there should be this division of labor between states when it comes to refugee protection uh, so i just wonder if you could explain a bit about that and uh, why you think it's important to allow for what you call a constrained flexibility uh, within this system uh, and perhaps if you could say something as well about how refugees might themselves play a part in in this process okay so i'll go through each of the three cat categories um in in 
in, in turn, but the, the important ones are the first two, uh, asylum and, and sanctuary. So in the case of asylum, I argue that somebody who has had their citizenship repudiated, been persecuted, um, needs kind of more or less immediate membership of a new state. But in particular, they need membership of a state which has relatively robust human rights protections. You know, they need the sort of assurance that their membership in the new state will not be subject to the kind of repudiation that, that they've already uh, experienced. So I think states that have you know, constitutional democratic states with, with kind of relatively robust human rights protection kind of have uh, an obligation to be the sort of first uh, responders, if you like, to, to people fleeing persecution. But it's also incredibly important that if someone's going to be a member of a state, that it's that they can feel a kind of sense of commitment to that state, that it's a state they feel kind of comfortable with. So for that reason, I think that, as it were, refugees' preferences, you know, their reason, reasonable pref preferences, should play a very significant role in where they go. So, for example, if a refugee has existing family in another state that that meets the, the human rights protecting threshold, you know, then, you know, that that should have normative weight, you know, um, in the distribution of refugees. Or if a refugee speaks a certain language, or if they have a particular professional background that, you know, is better suited to one state. I mean, so, I mean, I think, you know, whatever refugees are heterogeneous and diverse and they also may rank you know these different things differently so i think but i think it's really important that refugees as it were own preferences you know are given are given weight in the process of of sharing refugee presence among human rights protecting states now with respect to sort of sanctuary refugees i've you know argued that primarily issues about cultural and social integration are the, are the kind of first um port of, of of call um and so as i said previously i think you know states that have significant diasporas from that uh from the refugee producing state um that have reasonably you know decent social welfare provision, education, access to labor markets, um, that those are states that, you know, should kind of, you know, step up first with respect to that uh, group of, of refu refugees. I also think here that it can be, you know, important that refugees and states feel that they have kind of chosen them each other in a, in a way so 
you know, here again, I want to say that refugee preferences should play a role. You know, it doesn't have to be as normatively weighty as in the asylum case, but they should certainly play uh, a role in terms of, as it were, distribution of refugees to which state. So I kind of want refugee voice and, you know, refugee, what refugees value um, to be kind of built into the distribution of, of, of where they where they go. Now, um, it may be the case that, you know, refugees' preferences can't be fully satisfied, uh, you know, as to where to go, can't be fully satisfied, you know, under a kind of fair division of responsibility for refugee protection between states, okay? Even when we built in our kind of division of labor, you know. Um, so I then sort of say, well, look, you could have constrained flexibility where states could kind of trade, as it were, responsibilities. So for example, you might have, um, and they can particularly trade responsibilities um, where that better satisfies refugee preferences. So where a possible tra trade more satisfies refugee preferences than the status quo, that would be a legitimate trade to make, okay? So if you take a state that, um, you know, doesn't, is either not suited to refugee protection, Russia, or um, doesn't particularly want to take on refugee protection, let's say Norway, um, you know, or Japan, um, then I want to say, well, look, those states should be able to talk to other states, either about exchanging different forms of, of human rights work that they do, because obviously, you know, sustaining global human rights is not just about the refugee regime. There are plenty of other activities that are important for kind of securing a legitimate international order. So they could potentially, you know, Norway could say, well, look, you know, you take our ref ref refugees, we, we will do your peace and reconciliation work, for example. Or, um, states could uh, basically um, exchange refugees in ways that better satisfy their own particular uh, needs. So some aging European states might want younger refugees. Some others might want refugees with a particular kind of ethnic or religious makeup that they think will fit better into their existing society. And I want to say that in principle, those kinds of, you know, exchanges, responsibility exchanges, uh, are, are, are permissible. Um, they have to be kind of watched carefully. You know, they have to be constra constrained. But I think that it's permissible to do so. And it's important because it can change the message to the public of those states which is not only you know not that 
oh, we've had these refugees dumped on us, but rather these refugees chose us and we chose them. You know, that we were able, you know, that we both played a role in the process by which they've come to have, you know, asylum or sanctuary in our state. And I think that that shifts the kind of, if you like, the sort of public picture within which refugees are perceived. And, and it doesn't treat states simply instrumentally as, you know, boxes with a certain capacity to which, you know, a certain number of people can be dumped. It recognizes states have political histories, that states, you know, have particular reasons why they may favor some kinds of work rather than uh, some sort of human rights work rather than other. And so having a kind of possibility of constrained responsibility exchanges allows you to treat states in their individuality as well as securing protection for, for refugees. If you want to buy David Owen's book, which I think you should, <laughs> What Do We Owe to Refugees? Then follow the link in the episode description or on our Twitter account at TalkingMig, or you can visit wiley.com. That was all for this time. Thank you very much for listening.